Hey listeners and welcome back to another episode of A New Dark Dark Room. I'm your host Abby and in this podcast I cover all things creep. So if you're new here, welcome to In A Dark Dark Room. Like I said, this is a podcast where I cover all things creep and this week is a Dinky Darks week. If y'all don't know what that is, A Dinky Dark is a shorter, more fun, story-filled episode than my Wicked Wednesdays. And currently I'm doing Spooktober. This isn't a Spooktober episode, but if you don't know what Spooktober is, it's a very, very fun thing that I'm doing for October because it's spooker season. So what I'm doing is I'm replacing my normal Wicked Wednesday episodes with basically online very, very scary stories. I just uploaded one on Wednesday and it's very, very, very effing scary. I advise that you don't ever listen to it in the dark because it's absolutely terrifying. And honestly, I think I've made it a little bit more scarier. I think my additions have made it terrifying so it is a long one it's about two hours long but it's really really worth it please go and give it a listen because it's so good so at this dinky dark i so last week i asked if well not last week sorry but the week before i think i asked if people wanted instead of doing eight shorter true stories if people wanted like a 20 minute one single story i did a poll and the majority of the votes were one single 20 minute plus story so I'm going to be doing that this week and that's probably what I'll be doing from on my Dinky Darks from now on anyway. So welcome to the, I guess, the new version of Dinky Darks. This week I am doing a, so like I said, a 20 minute plus story. I'm not going to waste any more time. I'm just going to get right in, jump right in. My boyfriend forgot to lock his personal drawer last night. I am absolutely livid. As a child, I thought my visions were normal, that we all got them whenever someone was about to die, but nobody said anything as a common courtesy. I mean, imagine marching up to a person you've never met before and telling them, tough luck on the fridge freezer that's going to crush your skull later, nasty way to go being pinned down under all that weight. Oh well, rest in peace. That's why I didn't realise I was a freak until the night my parents died. There we were, driving home from the beach and singing along with the radio, when the vision showed me glass exploding inward. Another car slammed into ours like a bullet train speeding through a tunnel. Then up became down, then up again as we plunged over an embankment, my parents' mangled bodies twisting in the air. The second my vision ended, I thrashed around in my seat. Stop, stop, we have to get out, I screamed. After my mum turned down the music, she unbuckled her belt, reached into the back and grabbed me by the shoulders. Kira, honey, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? She and dad are about to get impaled by the fucking windshield. That's what's wrong. I don't want you to die, I whimpered, my my heart practically beating out of my chest. She screwed up her face. Who says we're going to die? And that's when it hit me. She hadn't the faintest idea that her ticket just got punched. Neither of my parents did. When I alternated between clawing at the door handle and slamming my fist against the side of the window, Mum begged me to settle down. Dad tried helping wrangle me into place, but he couldn't simultaneously do that and drive, so he eased the car to a stop. Five seconds later, headlights engulfed the cabin. I woke up in a hospital bed with my left leg in a metal cylinder. 
When a male doctor pulled back the curtain and announced I'd become an orphan, I simply stared at the bright bulb numb to the world. The bad news didn't end there. It turned out the bastard responsible for the accident sped off before authorities could arrive. Still, the doctor continued, with physical therapy you'll be able to walk again. The collision left me with 16 pins in my femur, a collage of nasty scars you can still see today, and a slightly off-balance John Wayne walk. Throughout the agonising six, week six weeks I spent in recovery, questions like, could you have saved mum and dad by reacting sooner, sloshed around my brain. Their mutilated corpses haunted me from the moment nurses arrived with breakfast until the drugs dragged me into a restless sleep. After rehab, state officials placed me with a kind foster family who made me see a shrink, one hell-bent on asking how the accident made me feel 50 times a session. I couldn't reveal the truth, that I blame myself for it, and simply thinking about mum or dad gets my insides squirming. Every memory of them had become entwined with guilt, you see. At the end of the session, my therapist encouraged me to lead a life that would make them proud. This set me thinking, what if the visions had a purpose? What if this ability could do some good? The people I cared about were beyond saving, obviously, but others still needed help. Isn't that how Batman got started? Finding somebody to rescue turned out to be a lot tougher than you might think. I only encountered folks whose obituaries would soon read died from natural causes. But then, after school one afternoon, some older girls strolled past my locker triggering an especially nasty vision. I saw the blonde girl at the front trapped inside a smoke-filled room choking on thick black fumes. As she feebly mashed her fists against an unmovable wooden door, naked flames licked her flesh until every inch of exposed skin bubbled and boiled. Right as her eyeballs melted out of her sockets, I found myself back at the locker. I limped after the group as fast as my weak leg would allow. On the march toward the front entrance, Blondie bragged about her family's plans to sit at their cabin in the woods that weekend. How would I convince her not to go? I waited until the group parted ways on the quad before I tapped the girl's shoulder. She turned to me. Hey, so I heard that you're staying at a cabin this weekend. Um, yeah. Well, I knew a guy... Well, I, I know a guy, well, I knew a guy who died in one of those. We both stayed quiet and the silence grew awkward. It caught on fire. Okay. She muttered a quiet freak as she turned away. Terrified I'd already blown my chance, I blocked her path. It's just, I've heard those things can be dangerous, you know, all that wood. Around us, conversations trailed off as students' heads snapped in our direction. Blondie circled me, her green eyes wide with embarrassment, and broke into a jog. My leg muscles twanged and spasmed, matching her pace. Maybe don't go, I mean, why take the risk? Get away from me, you loser, she shouted as she tore past the gate. At least check some smoke detectors when you get there, I shouted after her. That weekend, I passed time by staring up at the bedroom ceiling for hours on end. On Monday, the principal called a special assembly, and my cheeks were drenched with tears before he even approached the podium. The blaze took the lives of both the blonde girl and her younger sister. The school memorial attracted a massive turnout. and Being surrounded by that profound outpouring of grief, it felt like a knife twisting me in my ribs, a constant reminder that I had disappointed my parents. Again. This made me even more determined to save the next life. Three weeks later at the grocery store, an opportunity came along in the form of a thin clerk about to tumble off his ladder. I bolted down the aisle, but before I'd even managed ten steps, the man's feet wobbled from side to side. He windmilled his arms around, collapsing at a nearby lemonade stand. In the end, 
Gravity won. The tiled floor cracked his skull like an egg, then blood and fizzy yellow liquid seeped out from beneath the corpse, mingling together. Meanwhile, I just stood, deflated. A pattern soon emerged. The drowning girl got swept away before I could fish her out of the river. A social worker about to get stabbed flipped me off because I begged him to rush home, yet I couldn't explain why. The paramedics failed at resuscitating the elderly man suffering a heart attack on the park bench, even though, thanks to me, they arrived ten seconds after he started clutching his own chest. No matter what I did, no matter how I tried, the visions always came to pass. Always. When I barely winced at the cashier about to get shot in the face over some change in his register, it became painfully obvious that I had lost all hope. Sorry mum, sorry dad. Turns out my gift couldn't benefit others. Fast forward 15 years. By the time my 30s reared their ugly head, I'd launched a decent IT career and paid off a cosy apartment. Years of physical therapy had left my limp almost unnoticeable, although if I stood around too long, pins and needles still went racing along my thigh. Those guilt pangs over my parents' death never subsided, and as a result, I avoided large crowds and gatherings on an account of all the soon-to-be corpses. Until a bizarre vision changed everything. It was the 20th anniversary of the accident, and I'd slipped into a sports bar to perform my yearly ritual of drowning gruesome images from the collision in a shot glass. But no sooner had I found a quiet seat in the corner when a suited man approached my table and said, Hi, hey, baby doll. His appearance triggered a vision, which surprised me. The guy clearly looked after himself and couldn't have been any older than 40. Typically, people fit in that description bit the dust in strange and unusual ways. Maybe he had an undiagnosed lung condition or a jaded ex hungry for revenge. But my vision didn't reveal either of those things. Instead, it showed him on his knees in a windowless room beside a leather sofa, blood gushing from his neck like water from a spout. With a liquid gurgle, he pawed at his own throat and then slumped face down onto a diamond patterned rug feet twitching and standing over him slaughtering knife in hand was me back in the bar my hands clung to the table who was this guy where did this encounter take place and why the hell would I kill somebody a sensible voice in the back of my mind told me to just walk away to bolt straight out of the door if anyone else tried that baby doll line they'd receive a rude gesture in response but I needed some answers so I forced a smile and looked up. Buy you a drink? The man asked with an eyebrow raised. Peter had a slender nose, brown hair and dark eyes. A handsome guy, no doubt. He worked as a lawyer, youngest partner in his firm's history, and his favourite subject was himself. That suited me. I gave him a fake name, which he probably forgot ten seconds later anyway. You look familiar, he said after his third whiskey. Have we met before? Don't think so. Oh, I must be thinking of someone else. While he joked with the regulars and announced another round on me to a chorus of cheers, I studied his every move. Half expecting his taste in beer or how generously he tipped to reveal why he deserved a death sentence. Want to come back to my place? He asked me when the bartender called the last round. I should have made up some half-ass excuse and walked away, but there had to be some vital information I'd missed. Maybe Peter moonlighted as a serial killer, if so, didn't I have an obligation to investigate? Now intoxicated, he drove us over to his place in a fancy blue Porsche. The plan was simple. Stick around long enough to discover whatever dark secret he'd harboured, then leave. No matter what, if anything suspicious turned up, I would notify the police. That way, there would be zero risk of any trouble. After all, how hard could not slitting somebody's throat be? 
Pierre led me along the front hall and down a narrow staircase. As the basement door swung open, a yelp slid up my throat. We'd entered the room from my vision. Maybe I'd come to meet my destiny. Placing a hand against my back, Peter steered me past a diamond-patterned rug towards a home bar cast in a warm red light by a neon Budweiser sign. From beneath the counter, he grabbed a chopping board and a sharp kitchen knife, the same one future me butchered him with. My eyes stayed glued to the blade while he cut lime slices and poured over tequila shots. We had a toast before moving to the fancy leather sofa where my companion pounded back beer after beer. I nursed mine, staying sober and in control. He managed an entire hour of shameless boasting before his head slumped forward against his chest. The pieces had all fallen into place. The knife, the rug, the defenceless victim. Yet I saw zero reasons to hurt Peter. It's a miracle my giant sigh of relief didn't startle him awake. Take that dumb visions, you lost, it's time for me to leave. However, a quick look around couldn't hurt anyone, could it? There was no hidden torture chamber behind the bookshelf, just guides on the art of seduction, and the freezer didn't harbour any severed heads, only frozen salmon and shrimp. In a cramped office on the first floor, I rummaged through the desk drawers, and right when it felt like this had all been a gigantic waste of time, my eye happened across a pile of newspaper clippings. First headline read, Two dead in highway hit and run. Beside it was a familiar image, the wreckage that my parents died in. My hands frantically tore through the pile. In total, Peter had collected 17 articles about the collision and subsequent investigation. Beneath them sat an envelope with the name scribbled across the front. My name. A sensible voice in some quiet recess of my brain begged me to walk away, to forget, I w- to forget I'd ever seen anything, and go. I waved the thought aside, took a slow and steady breath, and tore open the wrapper. Dear Kira, this is something I must confess. On the night of your parents' death, I was driving drunk along. Those words dragged me back into the accident, caused me to relive the sensation of the seatbelt pinning me into place while my mum and dad's bodies ricocheted off the dashboard. Peter had killed my parents. I found his confession. The letter explained how he avoided prison. Since he stemmed from a wealthy family, his father had been the mayor at the time. Some powerful friends torpedoed the investigation. He heard I'd survived and considered reaching out over the years. The poor guy even spent countless nights agonising over what happened and felt filled to bursting point with regret. Clearly not quite fool enough to mail the letter. In an almost trance-like state, I returned to the basement. Peter snored away on the sofa. Only vaguely aware of my own actions, I circled the bar, grabbed the knife and positioned myself behind my parents' murderer. His foul, whiskey breaths fogged up the blade. My hands started trembling. Did I really want to go through with this? Did he really deserve to die? Is that what my mum and dad would have wanted? I quietened the bickering voices, closed my eyes and took a slow, steady breath. No. Two wrongs do not make a right. Better to take the letter and report the son of a bitch. Would this accomplish much? Unlikely. It sure beat the alternative, though. I started towards the door. I'd taken less than five steps when Peter said, Hey, you're not leaving all... What's that? By the time I'd spun around, he already found his feet. Those brown eyes whipped between me and the letter. Why? Where did you... Where? What? Of all the potential excuses that came to me, zero made sense. 
When it finally dawned on Peter where he recognised me from earlier, his face turned whiter than the paper confession. His mouth going wide with shock, most likely he saw a resemblance to an old family photo published after the accident. His hands shot up in a submissive gesture. Okay, calm down. Holding the knife out defensively, I snorted a quick, fuck you. The nerves in my leg went wild with terrible burning sensations. While I shuffled backwards towards the stairs, Peter said, listen, Kira, there isn't a day that goes by. Don't. Don't you fucking dare. He swallowed a lump. I'll make this right, I promise. Why don't you put the knife down and we can talk? The suggestion this could get talked out of made me snort. I said, go fuck yourself. I'm taking this letter along with your little scrapbook upstairs. Was this your plan all along? To get me drunk and snoop around? How long have you been planning your little heist? Still travelling in reverse, I cut the air, forced him to step back. The knife felt good in my hand, powerful. Don't be stupid, none of this would hold up in court. Give me the knife, then we can work things out like two. Completely terrified and barely able to form a cohesive thought, I almost obliged. Until a horrible image of the bastard picking his bruised, swollen head up off a steering wheel slid into my brain. I pictured him slowly uncovering my parents' inside spread across 20 metres of road before racing to call his dad, who called the chief of police. We can sort this like rational adults. I'll give you money or jewellery, a new car, whatever you want, just... With renewed confidence, I said, the only thing I want, Peter, is to see you in an orange fucking jumpsuit. My heel hit the bottom step. In the brief moment my eyes flickered backwards, this bastard lunged. I'll fucking kill you. He hissed through clenched teeth. His hands clamped around my wrist, tight enough that the fingertips plunged into the skin. We wrestled around, collapsing shelves and slamming against the bar once, twice. My parents' smiling faces flashed before my eyes, accompanied by thoughts about how this might be the final time I'd ever disappoint them. Both of us flew sideways in a collision course with the sofa. For a moment, the world flushed upside down. We hit the floor hard, the knife landing midway between us on the rug. We fumbled for it, me shaking from the panic and adrenaline, him struggling to regain equilibrium. In one smooth movement, I snatched the blade beyond that bastard's reach, readjust my grip, and then plunged the pointy end into his throat. As my hand yanked it loose, the thin blood trickle morphed into a furious spray. Some even got inside my mouth, disgustingly warm. Peter tried to speak, although no words came out, only a pathetic, wet gurgle. He flopped forward, tongue draped over his chin. And just like that, there I was, standing over a corpse. In retrospect, it probably shouldn't have been so much of a surprise. Repulsed by my red palms, I retreated towards the bar and slid to the floor, breathless. I began convulsing, rocking back and forth, bile sliding up my throat. I fell ill, and not only from the tequila. By the time I'd regained composure, a clock above the bar said 6am. Someone could walk in any moment. But there would be time for remorse later. First, I had to cover my tracks. Under my feet, the rug, having absorbed most of the blood, squelched as I raced around, wiping down every surface. After gathering together all articles about the accident, I departed on foot and ditched the knife in a dumpster several miles from the crime scene. I then rushed home and read the confession once more before burning it, along with Peter's treasure trove of misery. The next few days passed in a whirlwind of alcohol and tears. As a politician's son, my victim made the front page. Authorities appealed for anybody with any information to come forward. Funny how my mum and dad never warranted such a special consideration. After two weeks of rage, regret and hysteria, I'd almost reached the point of confession. 
until something unexpected happened, that is. Reports emerged of multiple drunk driving incidents involving Peter where the injured parties got paid off or threatened into silence. Along with more assault allegations reporters couldn't even keep up with. Turns out, Daddy had been buying that slime ball out of trouble for two decades. Gradually, the guilt haze looming over me since the night of my parents died evaporated. The visions no longer felt like a burden, they were a blessing, one that dispensed justice. After the investigation wound down and people lost interest in the story, I treated myself with a day trip to the beach. All those happy families reminded me of my parents' final day, when Dad and I spent hours building a huge sandcastle with its own drawbridge, my mum sunbathing nearby. While I stood in ankle-deep water lost in thought, a mother shuffled past carrying her infant daughter, A dishevelled man trailed after them, far away to not as appear suspicious. Then came another vision. In it, the mother and child sat back to back, tied up together in a bug-infested apartment, their jaws encased with duct tape. A grinning man hunched over them, his right hand caressing the terrified girl's cheek. A baseball bat connected suddenly with the back of his skull, which made him faceplant onto the wooden floor with a resounding thud. I'll give you three guesses who took that swing. Back on the beach, I watched all three disappear along the coastal path, conflicted. Going after them meant playing right into the vision's hands, not to mention cutting my celebration short. But then again, could I really pass up another opportunity to make my parents proud? Wow! That was a a story and a half. Not, Not scary, not a scary, scary story. But uh, one that makes you think, you know, would would I would I kill would I kill someone that was going to murder a mum and a child? Probably, <laughs> probably. Okay, well that's everything for me. Keeping this dinky dark extra dinky. I will be back on Wednesday for another spooktober. But until then, stay safe. I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend, and I will see you on Wednesday. Until then, enjoy the spooks. Bye.